Okay, good evening everyone. You know, the moment I say that, no one's actually listening yet, so it seems kind of silly. Uh, today, broadcasting live from Stony Creek in Connecticut. Yes. August 20th, 2015. Good evening. Today's quote, today we are looking at a quote from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is as usual part of a bigger text. The text actually mentions four types of people. Chattaro me bhikkave pungala santo samvijjamana lokasmi. There are four types of people. There are these four types of people, monks, to be found existing in this world, Samvijamana. What for? Attahitaya patipano no parahitaya. Those who are working for their own benefit, practicing for their own benefit, not others, not for the benefit of others. Parahitaya patipano no atahitaya. Those who are practicing for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of themselves. Ne watahitaya patipano no parahitaya. Those who are practicing neither for the benefit of themselves nor for the benefit of others. Atahitaya jeva patipano parahitaya cha. Those who are practicing both for the benefit of themselves and for the benefit of others. And so you can see how that's going to turn out the in regards to our English quote it's as to whether you are concerned with the restraint of greed, hatred and delusion in yourself and whether you encourage others in the same restraint and as usual the wonderful thing about the Buddha is he doesn't even bother offering an opinion on these four types of beings. I mean, it's one of the wonderful things about the Pali Canon is there are these teachings without actually pushing anything, you know. It's just chattaro me bhikkhuve pugla santos lokasmin. There are these four types of beings found existing in the world. And that's how he ends it. He says, indeed, these are the four types of beings found existing in the world. Which is typical of Buddhism, of Theravada Buddhism or the Pali Canon in terms of just teaching the truth, providing, op opening the door, you know, providing the opportunity for people to do good. Or to do evil and providing descriptions of the results of good and the results of evil and as we talked about a couple of days ago with the lion's roar quote basically leaving it up to people to decide for themselves to whether to practice and saying if you do practice the benefit comes to you. If you don't practice, in Thai they say laota. Laota means a very common expression used by the Thai people. Laota means up to you. But it's so much more laid back than that. Laota.
So what does it mean to be concerned with good? It means to be concerned with defilement, to be concerned with those things that prevent us from doing good and those things that and like and at the same time propel us to perform evil. Evil uh, unwholesomeness has this dual function that it's not often talked about, I don't think. We talk about the suffering that comes from evil needs, but or from evil, from unwholesome mind states. But we don't often talk about the destruction or the the what the mm, barrier that these put up to to un, to wholesome activities. How they prevent us from performing wholesome deeds. Greed can perform, prevent us from performing wholesome deeds because instead of, first of all, instead of cultivating wholesomeness, we're too busy indulging in our greed. Furthermore, it uh, creates turmoil in the mind and prevents wholesome minds from arising, wholesome mind states. Anger as well prevents wholesome mind states. It's called upaghataka kamma. It's karma that, that destroys wholesomeness or destroys other karma, in this case, wholesomeness. No, no, don't. And delusion prevents us. Delusion's a big one, I think, that prevents us the muddied, muddled state of mind when that we, um, in that lion's roar quote at the very end, as I mentioned, it's not mentioned in the in the quote that we looked at, but at the end of the sutta, they all were found to be with downcast eyes, kind of. And it, it's such a picture of delusion where they're just, you know, they can't reply, they can't refute what the Buddha has said, but they're so caught up that they just, this is that this is the situation when uh, presenting Buddhism to a deluded person. They hear you, they have nothing to refute it, but it doesn't cut through the delusion. So many people, when they hear the Buddha's teaching, do the this very thing. They'll sit there, kind of, you know, not listening. Maybe maybe feeling arrogant or not arrogant, but self righteous. What are you doing? Teaching these, you know, preaching to me, this kind of thing. Keep that teaching to yourself. Kind of, yeah. But often just not knowing how to take it, smiling, nodding, maybe. But sometimes you just can't get through because of delusion, certainly because of the defilements. And this is what was, this is the description that we get at the end of that sutta. So yeah, this is where good lies. Good lies in regards to the, there's the word restraint. Yeah, the word isn't restraint. It's vinaya. Vinaya means leading out. Vi, out, naya, leading. So it's the working to extinguish. You know, one leads oneself out or one directs one's mind to become free. So it's not exactly restraint. That's a bad word. There are words that we have for restraint, but that's not the word being used here. The word is vinaya. It means leading out or moving away from. So as you move away from greed, move away from hatred, anger, move away from delusion and if you encourage others to move away if you lead others out of these things help other people overcome these things then you're working for their benefit I think other places the Buddha has stated the obvious that this is the best sort of person but the same time some people only work for their own benefit and i think those sort of people are 
respected. I think people who aren't respected in Buddhism are those who don't work for their own benefit and only work for the benefit of others. And obviously those who work neither for their own benefit and the benefit of others. I think if we were to qual if we were to judge and be part you know, judge in contrast, we would say that those sorts of people are inferior and problematic, not not acting properly. But that's a judgment call and much of the Buddhist teaching is not a judgment. It's um, just a proclamation or declarate or the declaration of the truth. I mean, this isn't just a declaration of the truth. This is a providing a framework and framing uh, people, you know, categorizing people in a certain light. So pointing out the most important aspect out of all the categorizations you could make about people this is one of the most important are they acting for the good of themselves and for the good of the of others that's really what's important when you're categorizing people and so that's an interesting aspect here pointing out to us what is a proper classification of beings you know, it's not in terms of race or gender or what have you age um intellectual knowledge learning I have a story about that actually I, I figure I'll use this partly as sort of a blog so people know what I'm doing because I've kind of gotten away from writing text blogs so today I tried to um, tried to apply online for courses change some of my courses and I couldn't do it because over 10 years ago somehow um, when I was at McMaster University before uh, there was some bookstore purchase made and not paid for so I'm an absconder <laughs> uh, which is awful, really. I feel terrible about that. Don't know how it happened, but that was paid for by it was. They they asked for a hundred dollars, which makes me assume that the original value was less than a hundred dollars. But there was an interest thing, and I don't really know. It wasn't really clear. But what they said is, well, a hundred dollars will cover it. And the organized Sirimungal International kindly took care of that for me, but that wasn't enough for them. In order to actually register for courses again, there was a need to pay the money for the whole year up front. So Sri Mungo International kindly took care of that. And as a result, I was able to register for courses one day. I called them up today to find out what's wrong now, and it turns out that I was only they only did that for one day. And then the next day, the hold is back on. And it's going to stay there for two years because 10 years ago, there's a probably less than $100 charge that or you know, whatever that wasn't paid. So the point of this story is I finally talked to a counselor and um, explained the situation and she said, well, that's it. And I said, well, it seems kind of difficult if, you know, don't, I'm not going to be able to just change courses. You know, this is a thing you do in September. You go to classes, decide you don't want to take that class, and you switch classes. I mean, it's incredible that I am, what do you call, like, um, I am uh, feel like I've got a tattoo on my forehead or something. And uh, I didn't say that. But she said, yeah, I understand that it's difficult, but this is... And she blamed the new system, which seems to be a thing that they're doing now at McMaster. Blaming the new system, whatever that means. Uh, but the, the, great, the great thing was, and the reason I'm actually telling this story, is she could have stopped there. And I said, actually, at that point, I thought to myself, this is not... Uh, it's not it wouldn't be wholesome to argue. This is their position. She has, She has restated... The facts I've stated the facts where she has restated them back that that is the way things are and that's where I should leave it and so I said well th thank you for your time uh, but then she cut in 
And she said, first she said, do you, do you want to register today? Do you want to change your classes today? Because she was going to take the hold off for another day for me. And I said, yes, and other days, you know, and then I, then I got into this idea of don't people want to change, don't people normally change their courses several times, you know, isn't this a thing people, they decide that they, anyway. And, um, and then she, and then, then we got back into the two-year thing and I said, you know, it, I, th there's no way that you could just say, well, hey, this was 10 years ago and it's less than a hundred dollars and it's really such a, such a ridiculously small amount. And she said, oh, it was really that that little? And I said, yeah, it was hugely small or incredibly small amount. I mean, relatively speaking. And I, we, the organization just gave them over $4,000 for this year. It's not like... And she did it. The point of the story is that I found someone, some, some I guess you call them a bureaucrat, um, who was you know, very kind and, and compassionate. And she really had a nice attitude in the end. I think in the beginning she was a bit hard because they have to be. Every time I call them up, I explain my situation and they say, oh, it was um, bad credit or something. But the way they say it is like I'm a, a criminal. <laughs> it feels like, oh, yes, bow my head now. Which is kind of, but it feels kind of absurd because it was such a small thing and 10 years ago anyway. I thanked her profusely and, and expressed my appreciation and she was really kind. And that's what I expected really from the university. I was kind of disappointed that in the beginning I met with people who were kind of difficult and then I uh, tried to get a, 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 a photo, tried to upload a photo and they said, I, and, and so supposed to be able to do that online to get a new student card and that didn't work <laughs> so I called the office of the registrar and the, and, and this was right on the on the heel of, of a victory with the banker people and uh, and this person was really nice and was kind and kind of joked with me and explained that it was because I already had a photo on record and I had to come in and actually have them take a new photo and was just all around pretty awesome so I just thought I'd bring that up as an example of good news no and they have these good news there's this organization called good does anyone know that good they do good news you can look up good news on the internet there's this organization called good and they 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 publish only good news. <clears throat> Must be, I think it's American. Um, but yeah. So I think that's worth saying, worth, worth bringing up, being happy about people being good, concerned with goodness, concerned with being good, and being careful and conscientious in their dealings with others. It's a reminder to me to be to be careful when in conversation because it's easy to get carried away and upset. I remember being in Thailand, going to get uh, our visa renewed, and man, the 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 police control immigration in Thailand. It's weird. There's huge power struggles, and so there's the military who have power, and then there's the police who have power, and the factions in Thailand. It's a really interesting society. But the police control the immigration, and man, they love to uh, play with you. And so sometimes there were monks who would go in to try to get their visas and just explode at them. I heard stories of not just monks, I guess, foreigners as well, all, all foreigners of all kinds, because they can be really infuriating. And I've experienced that, and you have to just stand there and be mindful. It, it got fun after a while because you knew that what they were going to try and so you play the game with them and you go in thinking it's cool it's just a game and just letting once you can let go and just see it as a game then you just play the game with them because if if they if they can't get a rise out of you 
then they give up and they do their job and stamp your paper and that's it. But oh man, they play games. If you're not used to it, we're not really used to that in our bureaucracy in the West, I think. But it's uh, it's a Thai thing. It's something that you hear is that work in Thailand has to be fun. They ask about ask this about work. If work isn't fun, apparently that's a bad sign. Reason not to do the work. I don't know. Anyway, enough rambling. No, let's have some questions. Does anyone have any questions? There is a question. Go for it. When I meditate, my sense of taste magnifies so much that I want to stop to meditate. How do I overcome this hindrance? That is not a hindrance. That is an experience. Reality is like that. Meditation has this interesting effect of potentially amplifying the experiences at times. I don't think that's uh, always, it's certainly not always like that, but it can have this effect. Um, it's not a hindrance. The hindrance would be if you get upset or attached to that. If you get obsessed with the smells, you like them, you dislike them, you like the fact that you can smell, uh, your sense of smell is heightened, you dislike the fact that your sense of smell is heightened. Scents are one of the six senses. A scent, smell, is one of the six senses, and therefore you could become enlightened by noting about... Um, scent by acknowledging smelling smelling that that very experience could lead you directly to nibbana if your mind was clear enough seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling thinking any one of them can be a direct door to enlightenment so that certainly should not be understood as a hindrance the fact that it changes that normally you don't hear so clearly and now you do hear clearly is is also showing you impermanence, suffering, and non-self. Impermanence means it's you don't it changes. Suffering means it's not as you wish. So sometimes it's like this, sometimes it's like that. It makes it unsatisfying. You can't have it always one way, based on impermanence. Non-self. It's not you who decided. Now I'm going to smell clearly. Now I'm not going to smell clearly. It's, it shows you that reality, even your own mind, your own experience, it's not under your control. So that's how it leads you closer to Nibbana. It's certainly not a hindrance, actually. It's potentially a, a, a good opportunity to cultivate wisdom. Okay, I have to stop here because I just read something. I want to show these off, and I meant to do this at the beginning, but I forgot because I'm not I have a very good memory. But this is awesome. I want to thank everyone, some people who have been very kind. And um, today we went to Subway. Not for the first time, but there's a Subway just down the street. So certainly these are being put to good use. Anyone who, who offered these, I'm not throwing out the cards. The, the, the cards are inside, but I'm not throwing out the paper. I tend to keep, I keep every note gift note see this one the, the card is gone uh, most of them still have the card in them see card uh, so thank you all that's awesome uh, there's a subway also just outside of McMaster University so this is this keeps me alive this is a great way to, to stay alive so thank you you're allowing me to continue my work. And uh, that's just awesome. Not just thank you, but also um, great joy in the goodness. As an impartial, if I pull myself out of it, as an impartial observer, it's awesome that people are generous like that. I mean, generosity in general is a great thing, so thank you. Anyway, that's enough of that. Ready for another question? Yes. Where does our mor morality come from? Hmm. 
Morality can come from different sources. I think there's actually a list. I don't know where that list originates, but morality can come from... It was in Thailand I saw this list. I don't know that it's canonical or commentarial, but I think in Thailand or somewhere, years and years ago I read a list. Morality can come from tradition. So you could... Maybe we could go by the list that's in the Kalama Sutta. You, you go according because your teacher tells you it's a good thing, according because custom or tradition tells you it's a good thing. Um, maybe someone has a list of sources, but don't have a specific list. Anyway, morality can come from many sources. It ideally comes from things like mindfulness, I mean, mindfulness makes you automatically moral. Wisdom, uh, wisdom is wisdom means you don't have to consciously make a conscious effort to be mindful. You have the wisdom automatically that prevents you from cultivating the states that would um, lead to immorality. Immorality is in the mind, by the way. There's no such thing as immorality without mental defilement. So stepping on an ant is not immoral stealing something that you didn't realize you'd stolen you know, take carrying something out of a store not realizing that you hadn't paid for it it's not immoral immoral is when you intend when you have unwholesome mind states in fact an unwholesome mind state could techni technically be understood to be immoral although it's not um, morality is given an artificial artificial definition as physical and verbal acts based on unwholesome mind state. So a mental act is, I think, I mean, it's not considered sila, a, a breach of sila, but I think it, it's, it's basically the same thing. The point is the mind. So the point is really not the unwholesomeness, it's the or not the immorality, it's the unwholesomeness. Unho immoral is just an artificial aspect of unwholesomeness. But un immorality stems necessarily or requires um, immorality as a necessary condition. Without immorality, without unwholesomeness, there can be no immorality. So that's where it really comes from. Morality comes from a wholesome mind state. When the mind is wholesome, one cannot act or speak immorally. And that can come from mindfulness. It can come from concentration. If you're in the jhanas, there's morality that comes from just being in the jhana. You can't perform unwholesome acts or speech. And it can come from wisdom. Uh, as I said, if you understand that something is wrong, like really truly understand, then you don't give rise to the unwholesomeness. Dear Bhante, a teacher decades ago said develop truthfulness, harmlessness, and auto-mental reflection. Is reviewing are thoughts during the day just mental gymnastics or furthering? And are these just mostly moral issues? Reviewing our thoughts during the day, right? Yes. Um, no, you could, you could argue that that is an aspect of Vimangsa, reviewing. In fact, reviewing is part of the enlightenment process. Once you've attained Nibbana, the final step in the 16 stages of knowledge is to review, to look over what you've done, look over what you've accomplished. So it's not just gymnastics. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with the concept of gymnastics. I mean, gymnastics is a workout, right? So a mental workout of sorts. Um, but reviewing thoughts can be useful. It's this meta practice. M-E-T-A means outside. So your practice is here. Sometimes you have to step outside of your practice to readjust, to realign. And in order to realign, sometimes you need to review. You need to think back and say, look, 
I've been practicing in this way and it's not working. Like Ananda, who was walking all night, and then he stepped back and said, look, this isn't working, what's wrong? And then he realized he was walking too much and it was too much energy, so he lay down and became enlightened before he had completed the lying posture. I don't understand, are these just mostly moral issues? Hmm. I don't quite get the connection. Maybe we can go to the next one if, if you can put a little clarification in on the moral issues. The next one is, how do you keep mindful when someone is being unkind? You have to take yourself away from the person. Uh, Buddhism in some ways is very solipsistic. Very solipsistic. I mean, it's not really something you can say, but um, it's it's somewhat solipsistic, or it's it has solipsistic uh, flavor to it. In fact, you could be completely solipsistic and I think still be a good Buddhist, still fully follow the Buddhist practice. Solipsism is the belief or the philosophy that there is only one self. The only thing that exists is one self. You don't exist. None of you exist. And in a sense, there's some truth to that because my universe, as far as it's mine, is just me. I will never be in your universe. And so we each exist in our own universe. Uh, and uh, the only, we, we never experience another person. All we experience are their, their the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, feelings, and sometimes the thoughts of them. You can experience sometimes sympathy of emotions and empathy of emotions. But um, the point, right, how this relates to your question is that um, that's real. So you, you come back to what's real. The person being unkind is not real. And that's where you really get into a problem when you dwell in illusion. Because illusion is unsolvable. It's unworkable. You can't change what doesn't really exist, right? You build it up in your mind that this person is a mean, nasty being. All of that's just, you've created it yourself. So until you take that out, or change that. So some, some teachers in other religions advocate changing that concept and saying, this person is a nice person, imagining them being a nice person, imagining yourself having a nice conversation with them. And that works, it changes the illusion, but it's still dealing with illusion. It doesn't uproot the problem, which is the belief or the uh, misunderstanding or the the confusing of an illusion with reality. Reality is just experience. So you be aware of the experience of the emotions. How do I feel at this moment? And you throw away the, what is causing you to feel that way. Forget about what is causing you to feel that way. Focus on the feeling. Now I feel angry. Now I feel sad. Now I feel upset. However, uh, or, you, or you focus on the, the sensation. There, the the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking that is causing the upset. And when you either either or focus on one or the other, it breaks the chain, changes the um, mental process, sends you on a new path of being enlightened, being mindful. Ryan's asking about these subway cards today. If I didn't make it clear, there's quite a few here. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's also, there are other ways of getting food and there will be other offers of food. Food does come to the monastery and so on, but um, only time will tell. There's many, many here already. But um, certainly, I mean, I'm sharing these. So the other monks, today I, we got lunch for the other monk, for three of us. And uh, so we use two cards. And I've given a couple of the cards away to the other monks. So certainly they won't be put to waste. They won't go to waste. 
and they last forever. So anyone who wants to wants to take part in this and would like to send a subway card, all you have to do is send a card to that address and you, you, you go to the subway. There's a link on Subway's website. Subway's a sandwich company, if you don't know. Uh, and so we get sandwiches for lunch. And they have vegetarian alternatives, which is great. But uh, I'm not strictly vegetarian, so that's also not a problem. Anyway, yeah. Enough about that. When being mindful throughout the day, how often should we note seeing, hearing, etc.? Hey man, if you can do it once a second, that's awesome. I wouldn't worry about should, should. Do it as you can. If you get into should, then you just start feeling guilty when you don't. Uh, think of it as a, as a wonderful opportunity that sometimes during your day you can be mindful. There's a quote that's worded quite interestingly in the Satipatthana commentary where the people of the the, uh, the gurus were described as as no it's not even in the in the commentary there's somewhere somewhere one of the one layperson is asking about the four Satipatthana and then says it might be the Satipatthana Sangyutta where he says Oh, that's that's excellent. We too, as lay people, from time to time, um, engage in the practice of the four satipatthana. Which uh, you know, just the description of it. It's this is realistic. We do it from time. We do it as we can. And I think that's all that's expected. Absolutely, if you can do it twenty-four hours or uh, for all your waking hours, that's great. Every every moment that you're awake. But it's not a should. It's or well, you shouldn't worry too much about the should. You should certainly, but you should do it as much as you can. You know, as much as you're able. When you have the opportunity, then you should for sure. But I think it's very much a process of development. So depends where you are. You know how how comfortable you are and how. Uh, confident you are in really dedicating yourself to the practice of mindfulness. But it, but if you can catch yourself once when you're walking down the street and say walking, walking, you've done an awesome thing. That's how you should look at it. It encourages you to think like that. I think that's more useful. Do people have apamada apamada? Or give rise to apamada with meditation or both? I'm not sure quite how to take this vague question. I mean, sorry, it seems a little vague. Do people have apamada? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Do you mean do people who practice meditation have apamada? Or give rise to apamada with meditation? Or both? Robin, can you interpret for me? I'm a little lost as well. Do okay. people have apamada or give rise to apamada with meditation or both? So, so the question is, do you have it or you give rise to it? In do meditation? you have it or do you give rise to it? Or both? Well, it's just semantics, really. Neither one is exactly true, is exactly proper. Apamada comes to be, it arises through meditation. No one gives rise to it. It arises. Apamada also isn't a reality. It's a description of, or it's a characteristic of certain states of mind. Apamada is uh, non-negligence. Pamada means negligence, heedlessness. So apamada is heedfulness or vigilance. Um, which is only a description, a way of describing certain mind states. The actual mind state that is most associated with apamada is mindfulness. So you better, you'd be better to rephrase your question in terms of mindfulness. And the answer is mindfulness arises. 
through the practice of meditation. Did you did you say that another um, interpretation of pamata is drunkenness? Um, no, I don't know that I quite said that. Okay. People often may translate it that way because that's how what intoxicating drinks are said to lead to. So, so what I maybe said is that's a way of understanding the meaning of apamada of pamata. Oh, okay. Is that's what alcohol does to you? Alcohol makes you pamata. Okay. Uh, but that's a specific usage of the word um, to mean drunkenness, and it doesn't mean. Oh wait, 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 wait. Sorry. Literally, it does. Mud means uh, intoxicated. Mud. The root mud is to be intoxicated. So pamad means thoroughly intoxicated. So yeah, actually, literally, it does. But that's not how the Buddha was using it. Or he was using, you could say, the word intoxicated in uh, a unique way. But it's not really the exact meaning because apamada doesn't mean being unintoxicated. Although it does, I guess you could use it that way. You just said intoxicated and unintoxicated. That might be, we have stumbled upon the proper translation. I've been struck, we always struggle with this one because apamada could mean vigilance or heedfulness, but it's not a positive word. Literally, apamada is a negative. A, a means not. So it should be not something. So unintoxicated is a good one. Undrunk. Drunk and not drunk. And we have a comment and another question on gift cards. Um, if I can just jump in, on Sunday night, after the Dhamma talk on Sunday night, um, directly after, we're going to have a meeting of volunteers. Anyone who is at all interested in helping to support Bhante as he goes back to school, establishes a monastery, and all kinds of good things, we need volunteers of every description, um, you know, people that can come once in a while and help out, people that will be there all the time. We plan to meet weekly. So if you have any interest at all, um, show up on Sunday night. We'd, we'd love to have you. And I think we'll have some lists of things that the uh, meditation center will, will need and um, some abilities that will be needed, um, technical abilities and all kinds of things. So. Anyone has any interest, please come on Sunday night. We'd love to have you. Um, the next question is, what other gift card places are near you besides Subway that you like? Hmm. I'm not even sure about this whole gift card thing. No, it is allowed. Um, token, uh, they had in the time of the Buddha, they had these uh, tickets. So meals by ticket. Now, a meal by ticket isn't ideal. It's mentioned that for the Dutanga, for example, um, when one decides to take alms, only alms food, then one gives up all kinds of meals, including a ticket meal. So a ticket meal is when one family writes a ticket uh, or maybe the monks write a ticket and say this monk is uh, assigned to this house so you get the ticket and it says you are um, you are welcome to get a meal at this person's house so that ticket is okay and the ticket as long as you're not actually paying for it, you know the, so the meal is already paid for it's not um, this isn't money you know so going to get the meal Seems a reasonable extension of that principle. Anyway. I looked it up on Google Maps to see if there were any other places near the university. There's a place called Williams Williams Fresh, I think, but they have the strangest uh, setup. You have to order a gift card through an app, which you can only download the app if you're in Canada. So if um, you happen to be in Canada and would like to get a gift card. There is another place called Williams Fresh. It's right next to Subway, um, just for a little variety. But uh, we can check into that as well and put some information on the volunteer page. There's a Facebook page for volunteers as well. And I'll put all the links into chat in a moment. I wouldn't worry too much about that. I mean, okay. 
so, so uh, no I, I mean not talk, just talking to the person who asked the question it's um not really the most important thing i don't know that there's anything else certainly that i need subway seems to have a good selection sufficient there was a guy who lived off of subway for a year he got in the news didn't he He's, he was in the news today, not for good reasons. I heard that as well, that he was in the news recently for something. For very good. bad reasons, yeah, yeah. He's no longer the spokesperson for Subway. Mm. They don't want to be associated with him any longer. Now, my guess is it wasn't the Subway, eating all that Subway food that caused him to be that way. I wouldn't uh, think so, no. I'm assuming. No. no, that was something unrelated, I would think. The point was that he, he, he was quite healthy after it, no? Well, the problem, I suppose, is that there aren't many vegetables in a sandwich. There's no broccoli or kale or any of these nice uh, dark green vegetables. Yeah, they're, they're a little bit limited. They've got basic lettuce, tomato, onion, pickles, a little bit limited. So... Mm. There's also a Thai restaurant near there that has has actually offered if um, around 11 a.m. any day I could just go in there. So that would be neat if I can find out where they are and exactly how close they are to McMaster, figure out if it's in walking distance. That would be nice for some variety. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. So the follow-up on the question regarding um, reviewing your thoughts and are they moral issues, um, the meaning is, I mean, being truthful and harmless seem to be basic moral behavior. going to go back to the original question. So the original question was, a teacher decades ago said develop truthfulness, harmlessness, and auto-reflection. Is reviewing our thoughts during the day mental, mental gymnastics or furthering or just mostly men, moral issues? Sorry. I think you need to give me a, fair, a clearer question. I'm still not exactly clear what you are looking for. What are you, what is the question? Don't do something clear. Uh, don't don't have to give too much background. What do you want to know? Do you want to know are truthfulness and harmlessness just basic moral behavior, or are they something more? I mean, I don't know. It's weird, really, to frame it that way. As opposed to what? What else would they be? Advanced moral behavior? Please give a clear question that will help us. Okay, Joanna. In your opinion, does the end justify the means? Would it be okay to break precepts as long as you have good intentions? You can't break the precepts with good intentions, that's the point. It's it's considered to be impossible. When you kill, you do so. The only way you can possibly intentionally kill is with an unwholesome mind state. So you, by, you, you, the understanding of intention has to be clarified. Intention is your state of mind. And you cannot kill, steal, lie, cheat, at least those four you can't do without well, you can't do with a whole, without an unwholesome mind state. I think I would argue that you could take alcohol without having an unwholesome mind state for medicinal purposes, for example, but um, with the intention of becoming intoxicated, no, I think it's not reasonable to suggest that you could be um, have a wholesome mind state or even a non unwholesome it would have to have be un unwholesome. 
Now, the act of killing can actually be associated with many wholesome mind states as well, but the actual intention to kill is unwholesome. It can be surrounded with all sorts of, you know, compassion for the person that you're going to kill, you know, putting them down, putting them out of their misery, etc., etc. There's a lot of delusion involved there as well, but it could be compassion and and um, kindness to others. You know, this person is a mean, evil person, so I'm going to kill them, for example. The ends absolutely do justify the means, but killing, stealing, lying, cheating, taking drugs and alcohol do not have, can never have positive end. Never have a positive end. I think that leads to the question that keeps popping up on Stack Exchange about lying if it would protect someone from being hurt. Um, mm -hmm. Well, well, the, Buddha, the Buddha called it black and white karma, karma that is both black and white. So the white is the good intentions, the desire to help someone, but you can't avoid the fact that the actual lying is unwholesome and is going to have a bad effect. It's it's harmful. You are distorting the truth. You are um, taking someone, whoever they may be, however evil they may be, you're taking them further away from the truth. You know, there are reasons all four of these, five of these, are in inherently associated with unwholesomeness because of what they do. So you'd have to figure out yourself if the if the uh, black karma of allowing someone to get hurt would be worse than the the. Uh... I don't think so. I think you. There's always a better way. I mean, the the. It, 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 you could, that is an interesting argument, and I suppose it would work at times. It may work at times, so I shouldn't say, but it's not the orthodox recommendation. The recommendation is to find a better way. You don't need to perform the white karma. You don't need the white. It's not considered to be worth it. We're not obligated to perform good deeds. We're obligated to have a pure mind, and you can't perform these unwholesome deeds it's it's usually with the desire you know that's why desire leads to unwholesome can lead to unwholesome deeds because you desire the positive results you desire to avoid or you don't desire the negative results and that's why we perform unwholesomeness we want to fix we want to change we want to control the situation and that's not required you know you're not required you're not obligated to kill hitler if you are even if you're in a position to do so it's not your obligation to stop a holocaust you know that's maybe a radical thing to say but that's a very buddhist thing to say it's also fairly scientific i would think i mean for all we hold up science to be important we can act terribly unscientific when it comes to morals and ethics in terms of purposefully conf you know confusing issues by saying you're heartless you're cruel etc so what you know who cares you know is it really scientifically and negative of me to maintain equanimity when other people are suffering <laughs> i don't think that's a very popular view not even with buddhists everyone wants to say you have to be compassionate and i think there's room for that i think it's certainly that certainly is true. I think an enlightened being tends to be naturally compassionate, but they will never perform unwholesome deeds um, in order to fulfill that. Their, their, their inclination to be compassionate is not, um, is not strong enough or is not on the level of sacrificing purity of mind. Purity of mind is the... Um, I mean, it's not even a choice. It's not even saying, oh, I don't want to sully myself, so I won't do that. A pure mind will simply not do, the, do such things, will not, cannot, is unable. You might want to frame it this way. It's just unable to do what is required. An enlightened being, one who has seen the truth, is incapable of killing Hitler, for example. 
incapable of lying. I mean, lying is an easier one because you don't ever have to speak. Just because you can't lie doesn't mean you have to tell the truth. Didn't we have a quote recently about that? We're talking about that recently anyway. There's no reason to tell someone, oh, he went that way, or there's, oh, there's some nice Jewish people hiding out in my basement. You don't have to tell the truth. But um, enlightened being has given up any reason to lie and kill and so on and so on. So I didn't mean to say that they won't help, that they don't have this, that they look on. I was mis... That was wrong of me to say that they would look on with equanimity when other people are suffering. There's a certain amount of equanimity that is required, but it's the equanimity of knowing one's limits and knowing the limits of what's appropriate. An enlightened being doesn't care. <laughs> they don't care. They don't care about the Holocaust. They don't care about people suffering. They've, they've stopped. It doesn't upset them. They act based on purity of mind. So they're naturally kind, they're naturally generous, but there's no uh, there's no sorrow when they don't get their way. The point, the, the, the idea of not caring means it doesn't affect them. You know? So when they are unable to help, when it's not appropriate for them to help, and it's also a fairly strange, to us, strange definition of appropriate. Very hard. These are things are very hard to talk about, because I'm sure I'm, this makes makes me very un, you know people who say these things very unpopular. But um, that's why we're caught up in samsara because we care too much. We care about our own happiness. We care about the happiness of others. Now here, what was the quote today? Concerned. Mm. The word isn't concerned. Practices. How is a person? Oh wait. Yeah, it's not concerned. The word is, how is a person practicing? How does a, How is a person one who practices? And that's important. That's a crucial distinction because no, they are not concerned for their own good. No, they are not concerned for the good of others. They have no concern. To have concern means to be attached to outcome. If the outcome is not as you expect, you suffer. There's a good, tie it back into the original quote. Um, they're not concerned. The word isn't concerned. They practice. So say enlightened beings are heartless, are cruel, or so on. They're none of the above. They just don't care. Or no, they just don't care. They don't care, but they practice. They practice as if they cared. It, it looks as though they cared. Why? Because goodness and purity are directly related. It's It's a pure thing to help people. It's an impure thing to refrain when the opportunity presents itself but it has to be an opportunity that is pure it can't be an opportunity based on greed anger delusion that's unreasonable it's improper and th this quote here points that out the buddhist view that what is truly in one's benefit and the benefit of others is directly related intrinsically related to related with related to um, unwholesomeness, wholesomeness and unwholesomeness. It's interesting that the person who doesn't work for their own good is is in the, the negative category, the not well thought of category, because there the is so point, many. The point with that is it's it's problematic. You can't really be, I mean, the philosophy is that when you work for your own benefit, if you have no concern for the benefit of others, you could you could have a point there that a person who is actively blocking the support of others, there's a problem. They're doing it out of defilement. But then you would just say such a person can't exist. And if such a person does exist, then what it means is simply a person who um, maybe lives in the forest and doesn't have interaction with people. Yeah. I was, I was actually referring to the one that that works only for, if I understood it correctly, the person who works only for everyone else, but doesn't, oh, right. Sorry. practice for themselves, um, um, be, because it seems like there are a lot of you know 
people who think that that kind of selflessness is good. And it's interesting that that's not well thought of in this in this teaching. Right, and the point point being, so let's see, could someone work? Yeah, the point being, it's it's a problematic. The the real point of that is that it's a problematic um, standpoint. It, look at it this way: if every Buddhist compare the contrast the two middle ones, right, working for one but not the other. If every Buddhist were to work for the benefit of others, but not work for the benefit of themselves, no Buddhist would become enlightened, right? No Buddhist would ever benefit. If every Buddhist worked for their own benefit, but not for the benefit of others, technically at least, um, all Buddhists would become enlightened. Now the problem with that is fewer people would hear the teachings, right? So you'd, you'd in the end have fewer. So it's not, there's a problem with it as well. But helping others and not helping yourself, being a teacher but not a student or not a practitioner, um, it's it's a real problem that we have with the idea of the Mahayana. Not with becoming a Buddha per se, but with encouraging everyone to put off their enlightenment. Apparently Brahma Vangso, this Australian teacher who's very funny, said uh, he imagines the last moment when everyone's ready to become enlightened, where they're all saying, no, you first. Oh, no, you go first. No, no, please, I insist. And no one's actually becoming enlightened. But the problem with it, the real problem with it, is if no one's enlightened, you know, what, what exactly is being taught? What exactly is the benefit of the teachings? How can such a teaching really stay true to the goal? Hmm? And we would have a criticism that... Um, it very easily veers away from the path because there's no enlightened beings. All the teachers are not enlightened. They've put off their enlightenment. So if you're not enlightened, what exactly are you teaching? That's the risk. That's the problem. But see, the thing, the bodhisattva wasn't really a teacher. And that's what it's become. You have bodhisattvas in the Mahayana tradition who are teachers. And the bodhisattva taught, but he didn't ever teach Buddhism. What he taught was not Buddhism, it was morality, and as a king he taught, as a monk he taught, but it was never considered to be the path leading to enlightenment. It wasn't ever considered to be the right, right path. He was working to find the right path. And only when he became a Buddha did he actually claim to be on the right path and be teaching the, the truth. So when, now we have something different. We have people who... Uh, have a new definition of enlightenment as one who isn't yet a Buddha, as far as I can see. And that's a problem because the teachings of those people will never be on par with even the teachings of a Sotapanna who has experienced Nibbana, from our point of view. I mean, it's an argument that we have. Did the Buddha actually say, start with yourself? Yes, he said, Atana meva patamang patirupe niveseye. It's in the Dhammapada. Patamang means first. Atanam eva patamang patirupe niwese. Patirupe niwese. One should niwese. Establish oneself in patirupa, in the appropriateness. Patamang first. Atanam, atanam, oneself. Uh, Eva, indeed. Nakile seva pandita. I think that wise people will not sully themselves. Will not. And that's a very powerful statement that points to what I'm saying is that um, you defile yourself by helping others, you. There's a smirch because you're you're not um, you're not pure yourself, so you're going out and trying to help others. There's it's it's not pure. You have the potential to spread impurity because you're not enlightened. Wow, that was over an hour. I think wow. let's stop there then. Thank you all for tuning in for hanging out.
and uh, see you all tomorrow then. Thank you, Bhante. Thank you, Robin. <laughs>